before we get started here into the message, before we get started in the message, we're going to have a quick uh, missionary update. Um, we're always blessed and privileged when one of the missionaries that we support is back in the area, and they can come back and do a quick little update of what God is doing. And uh, many of you have heard uh, Matt McClure come up and share before. Matt McClure is with the Great Commission's Ministry, serving on college campuses, serving on the Kent campus right now. And Matt has been, uh, boy, we've been supporting Matt for, how many years have we been supporting you, Matt? 50 years. Um, and... And I, and I would say this, you're not supposed to play favorites, but uh, Matt, Matt's one of my favorites that we do support. And I love the ministry, I, and I've shared this story with you before. I think it's been a while since I've shared it. I'll share it with you real quick. We were introduced to Matt through a uh, family that used to attend out here. Mike and Melissa Walther, and they said, hey, there's a great ministry, this great guy that's uh, raising support. At that time, Matt was serving at the BG College campus, and we've always had a heart to want to minister to the college kids in the area, and BG being so close to us, it was near to our heart. So I said, why don't you come over and meet him? So I got a chance to go over and meet him, and I knew nothing about Great Commission's ministries. I didn't know what was going on, and I'll let Matt fill in the rest of the details. But when it comes to supporting a ministry out here, uh, we grill them. I mean, we really grill them. That we take that very seriously of what we want to support, and it's you know the money that the people are giving to the church to further the gospel. And we want to make sure everything's on the up and up. So I felt bad because came to Matt, and it was basically with Matt. It's like I don't care about chit chat. Let's just find out who you are. And he went through this whole grilling process of questions and loved him, just absolutely loved him. And I don't know if I've ever said this before in the 12 years I've been a pastor out here. If you are praying about a ministry to get behind and get to support and you want that individual touch to it, I can't stress to you enough, Matt and his wife Tiffany and their family, they are the real deal. They're out there on the college campuses proclaiming Christ to a very tough generation to share Christ with. And if you want somebody to get behind to support, I can't stress you enough how much Matt, I, how much I love him, how much I think of him. So without that, Matt, why don't you come on up here? With that introduction, don't screw it up. So, I don't think there's anything else I can say. That was really good. I did get grilled. I thought there was no way I was going to get any support, um, but God, uh, God works in mighty ways. I, I want to say thank you. This church has been, it feels like my home church, even though I didn't have a home church when I went on staff. Uh, with this ministry called Great Commission Ministries. Um, and God just really connected me with a, a lot of awesome people, uh, but not a lot of churches. So the fact that Harvest jumped on board and got behind what we were doing after a tough, tough grilling process was uh, really ministered to Tiffany and I. So my wife Tiffany is not here. We have a two-year-old Mason and a six-month-old Phoebe. Uh, both are back in Kent. My wife's parents uh, made the trip over so that we didn't have to load up our kids and bring them all the way over here to Northwest Ohio. So I want to give you guys a quick update it has been an awesome year. We were praying that God would grow our ministry from around 130 or 140 students last year to 200 students this year. Now you have to understand we don't worship the numbers, but at the same time, we know that if God were to add 50 or 60 or 70 students, that means at least some of those people have made a commitment to follow Christ for the first time or have recommitted their lives to Christ while being at college. And uh, I tell you what, God has really poured out blessing on us. We are flirting with around 200 students that worship every week. Uh, but even more than that, we're seeing God work in a whole, whole bunch of different ways. And the way we sort of structure our church is this way. It's not from the Bible, it's not inerrant, but the way that we think about our ministry is in these movements. So we talk about the upward movement, the inward movement, movement, and the outward. And so when we talk about the upward journey, we're talking about worshiping Christ. And as a church, we've sort of set this goal of, God, would you bring us 200 students uh, to our services? We think our services are a time 
where people meet Jesus, where people hear the gospel, they hear scripture, and we want as many people there as possible. So like I said, we've been in the 190s, been in the upper 180s, and it's been really cool to see. Uh, when we moved to Kent, we were told that this is where ministries go to sort of plateau at about 75 or 80 students. We were told that uh, when we were thinking about planting a church there on campus, the folks who had been ministering there for decades said, this is not the place you come to start ministry that grows to two, three, four hundred students. It just does not happen on this campus. And us in our pride, sort of probably pride and a little bit of Holy Spirit conviction felt like that's all the more reason to go to Kent. So to see what God has done in now our fifth year on campus is, uh, is pretty amazing. When we talk about the inward journey, what we're really talking about is getting linked up into a Bible study. We know that it's one thing to come on a Sunday night to our worship service, but we want to see students really get to know scripture and get into those relationships that refine us and challenge us. And it's been something that we've put a huge emphasis on. Uh, in the past, we've had upwards of 95% of our Sunday attenders in a small group. That number has dropped down, I think, because we're bigger. We have some people who are just checking us out week by week. But we're around 150 to 160 students who every week are going through a book of the Bible in a small group. We break those down uh, same sex and keep them to about eight or ten people and those are growing we've already multiplied four of those groups this year so we're, we're around 20 small groups that meet all around campus and then the outward journey that's kind of where we've been focusing this year we've really been teaching a lot about evangelism we've been teaching about God's heart for the lost and uh, training and equipping our students in ways to share the gospel and get to know people it's sort of in their sphere of influence God is opening doors we have inroads now for the very first time into two massive segments of the campus, uh, the Greek life, uh, Greek students. Uh, you, you guys kind of know the stereotype of what Greek life is like, the fraternities and sororities. Um, God has opened the door, and we now have Bible studies, both meeting in both some of the women's sororities and the men's fraternities. And these frat guys are talking to each other, and they're inviting their friends from other fraternities. And we don't know what God is going to do. They literally just opened this door about a month ago. But we're dreaming and visioning and praying, you know, what if God would have... Our church, H2O, have a presence in all of the major Greek systems uh, at Kent State. It'd be awesome. And the other inroad that we have is to the athletes. A tough group of people to reach, very busy. Kent State's football team is 8-1. and one. Should be ranked in the top 25, but we're not. Bummer. Um, God has opened the door. We have uh, athletes from four different teams on campus uh, who are coming around to our church and uh, we're just using those leveraging those relationships to really penetrate further into the athletic teams and to hopefully have an opportunity to share the gospel with and see some athletes come to know the Lord. Um, a couple other things I'll just mention by way of sharing with you what God is doing. We have a ministry called The Well, which is for freshmen, and it's kind of a seven-week crash course on what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Uh, we team them up with a mentor. We have them go on a retreat, practice spiritual disciplines, and they attend a weekly meeting. We had 32 freshmen go through that ministry this year. It's the largest group we've ever had, and uh, through that process, we've seen three students give their lives to the Lord. Uh, so they came in. They thought they were a Christian uh, because they had attended church or because in their family they used the word Christian. But through this class, this, this sort of ministry, they came to realize that uh, their hearts were far from God. And so they've committed their lives to the Lord. Uh, we've seen a couple other students come to know the Lord just at our big retreat. We had a retreat last two weekends ago. Had 125 students there. Two students gave their lives to Christ at that event. And we're praying that more and more people commit. We do baptisms at the end of every semester. So in early December, we'll have a baptism service at the rec center on campus. And we're praying that God just gives us a lot of folks to, to uh, baptize and to make public their faith in Christ. Um, Tiffany and I are having a blast. 
doing a lot of leadership development. As our church has grown, I've moved into the role of a pastor in our church. Uh, I do have less time face-to-face with freshman students. Although I am leading a group of guys in the Honors College through uh, a book, kind of like an apologetics book. These guys are atheists and agnostics. Uh, And I do get time with students, but really what we've focused our efforts on is raising up the next generation. And so we have a group of uh, 17 or 18 students who come to our home every Sunday night for two hours. And during that time, we're just pouring into them. We're giving them ministry skills, we're teaching on different areas of doctrine and theology, and we're talking through life. Because we really believe that if we have hope of reaching Kent State and seeing God do something even bigger than what he's doing now, it's going to take more than just the seven or eight staff people that we have. We need the students to be our missionaries with us. And it's been cool to see we have students every week who are out sharing the gospel. We have students every week who are discipling the freshmen. And to see what God is doing, the the process of not just adding leaders, but multiplying leaders has been really cool to see. So thank you guys for for supporting what we're doing. We don't know what God's going to do with Kent State. We're dreaming about a church plant. We would love to be in a position where we have the staff and we have the ministry solidified to the place where we're, we're starting to dream about where we're going to go next. It would be another college town. It would probably be in Ohio, but who knows what God would ask us to do. The reason I'm here during the school year, which is a time that I'm not normally here, is because we actually fell short of our fundraising goal this summer. And so I asked Pastor James, uh, could I come and just give an update and see if God might tug on the hearts of some people who would want to support what we're doing. So he did a great job plugging that and selling that. I don't even have to do that, but I'm going to stick around. I would love to meet you. If you have any questions about what we do, if you're interested in supporting what we're doing, if you just want to get our newsletters, we send out letters every month. I'd love to sort of keep you guys connected. We need prayer support. We need financial support. We need it all. So come meet me. I'm going to hang around and get some free food, and I'd love to tell you more about what we do. I told Matt when he called me that he picked a good day to come because of the potluck. So hey, let's pray real quick. Uh, Lord, just pray to be with Matt and Tiffany there. Just use them on the college campus. We pray that you would meet their needs spiritually, physically, financially. Lord, be with them in all ways. Thank you for just them being on the front line of the college campus, talking to those kids there as they make decisions to know you, Lord, impacting future generations. We ask for your blessing on that name. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Uh, The church will be giving a uh, love gift to Matt and Tiff. And like I said, if uh, you guys are interested at all in finding out more, feel free to talk to Matt here afterwards. He'll be around, and we'll go from there. So, all righty, we're going to be in Luke 7. Luke 7. I was told in the back that there is plenty of food, so even if you didn't get a chance to uh, sign up or plan on coming to the potluck, you are more than welcome to stick around and stay for that. Great time of food and fellowship going on there in the back. Luke chapter 7. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 36 through 50 here as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Now, normally the way we do this is we read a few verses, stop, talk about it, break it down. We're going to do this a little differently this morning. I'm going to read the whole story here from verses 36 through 50, make a few points as we're doing it, but it's important to get the context of what's going on. Luke chapter 7, verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. This would be a mineral-type flask, and this would be a precious possession there, worth a lot of money. Stood at his feet, verse 38, behind him, weeping, and she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. 
There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. So basically about 500 pieces of silver, about 50 pieces of silver. When they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Now tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He said to him, you have rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, a couple points about this. First off, this Pharisee by the name of Simon invites Jesus over. Now, we don't know his reasoning behind it. We don't know his motives. Was his motives truly, I want to know about this guy. I want to know who Jesus is. We get a little hint into Simon's personality in verse 39 where Simon is speaking to himself and basically says, now listen, if Jesus was a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is. What type of woman was she? New King James says she was just a sinner. Now, depending on your translations, one translation said she was immoral. The other translation said she lived a sinful life. I think it's interesting that she's unnamed, and the sin that she does is unnamed. And I like that, because that means it's very relatable to us. We are basically this woman. We're just a sinner. We've lived a sinful life. We lived an immoral life, and it doesn't matter what our name is, and it really doesn't matter what sin we've done, because we've all just sinned. And this is the story. Now, we have to jump to the end first. Because what we see here is look what Jesus does. Verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Verse 50, your faith is saved. You go in peace. Those are the two things we need, our sins to be forgiven and then to have peace. I don't know how many times when people contact me out here at church, they're looking for one of those two things. They have a very sordid past. They're carrying guilt. They're carrying burden. They're carrying conviction. And they need their sins forgiven. So what do we do? We point them towards Jesus that forgives sins. Or what happens is they know the Lord, but they're not walking in peace. They need that peace in life. They're struggling. They need peace. We point them towards Christ who gives them peace. Turn, if you will, with me to uh, John 14. We just covered this not too long ago on a Wednesday, if I remember correctly, but it bears repeating. John 14, please. Peace and forgiveness. Two beautiful things. How many people do we know that are walking in sin of something they've done Days, weeks, months, years, maybe decades ago, instead of walking in forgiveness. How many people do we know that just need peace? Their life is a wreck. This is not what God's called them to. This is not what the Lord wants in their life. And their life is a wreck. Look here, John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. Oh, what a simple verse. Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. Let's build on this. Stay in John 14, please. John 14, verse 27. This is one of those verses that should be marked, underlined, circled, and starred. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If you are struggling in life, the only place you will find any peace is in Christ. And if you have a loved one that's struggling, the only thing you can do is point them towards the peace of Jesus. That is all there is. How many times in life do we waste our breath, our energy, and our effort to try to bring peace to someone when really the only thing we can do is introduce them to Christ? Build on this one more time. Stay in John. Go to John 16, please. Verse 33. John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Do you really want to bring peace to your friends and family? 
Give them Jesus. You have no words of wisdom. You have no comfort that you can give. The only thing you can do is point people towards Christ. I know people that spend all their life chasing other people's problems. They live off the drama of other people. We need to get off that train and just say, the only thing I can do is offer you the peace that Christ has. That's the only thing I can do. Look at the verse 33 one more time. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. It has to be in Christ. But in the world you will have tribulation. I remember when I first got saved. I had myself convinced that once you got saved, everything was fine and dandy. You either just waited to the day you died, or you waited till Jesus returned in the rapture. That's all you did. And until that time, everything's going to be great. I think sometimes there's a fallacy in how we teach as a church that just because you know Christ doesn't mean you're not going to have problems in the world. People that are saved get cancer. People that are saved lose their job. People that are saved have financial difficulties. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. See, he says, you will have difficulties. The believer and the non-believer both will have difficulties. The difference is the believer has peace from Christ. You work with people, you live with people, you know people that are completely and utterly struggling with guilt, conviction, sin, lack of peace. The best thing you can do is point them towards Christ. It's the best thing you can do. Turn with me real quick to Philippians 3. Let's talk about one guy here. Before we move on with the rest of this, let's talk about one guy that struggled with the past. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, please. Years ago, there was a gal that started coming out here to church. She was a lot like this woman in Luke 7. She had the past. She had the checkered past. She was trying to move forward in a walk-in relationship with the Lord. But she couldn't move past the past. She couldn't walk in forgiveness. She just kept thinking about what she did, the choices she made, the damages that she called, the relationships that were lost. And she couldn't move past this. And we tried to share all the verses with her. You know, Psalm 103, your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west. Lamentations 3, your, his mercies are new every morning. We tried to tell her, forgiveness, walk in forgiveness. She struggled with that. To this day, I know she still struggles. Now, talk about a guy that struggled with the past. We're going to read about Paul here. Now, before Paul became Paul, he was Saul. What his job was was to go round up Christians and have them killed. Now, I heard a pastor say one time, he goes, can you not imagine how many times when Paul went to go preach the gospel to somebody that the enemy would just whisper in his ear? He used to kill these people. He used to make widows. He used to make kids be fatherless and motherless because you would take their parents from them and have them killed. How many husbands did you slaughter? How many wives did you... How many people were killed through the hand of Saul because of his stance against Jesus? Now, when Paul got saved, he had to move past that. How did he do it? Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul comes around and says, he goes, guys, I'm not perfect. He goes, I'm not claiming perfection. I'm not perfect. He goes, but I keep moving forward. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Paul says, I put the past behind me and I move forward. What does he move forward in? Verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because I move forward in Christ. That's the answer. Moving forward in Christ. Do you know how many Christians I know that have the head knowledge of God and they talk a good talk? Their lifestyle is not there. Their actions are not there. They're not moving forward in Christ. They're stuck in the past. They're stuck in some slop of sin. Verse 15, Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it even to you. Paul says the sign of a mature Christian is realize they walk in forgiveness, and as they walk in forgiveness, they move forward in Christ. Then he says in verse 15, If you don't believe this, he goes, eventually God will reveal it to you. Part of maturity is realizing you are forgiven. And since you are forgiven, you can move forward in that forgiveness in Christ. 
When somebody stops and just wallows in their past and their sin, they're showing an immaturity of realizing, what are you doing? Why would you want to stay in unforgiveness? God has forgiven you. Move forward. Walk forward. See, this woman here, she knew the forgiveness of God. So since she knew the forgiveness of God, her sins are forgiven, and now she has peace. What an amazing thing that is, to have peace, to be forgiven through God. Now, it would be really great if we could just end right there. The problem is there's this verse 39. Jump back to Luke 7 now. Look at verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Now, we don't know what type of woman she was. Like I said, she's unnamed. Her sin is unnamed. She's just a sinner. The Pharisee doesn't like it. The Pharisee doesn't like this, that this sinner came in to his house and, and sat at the feet of Jesus. I hate to say this. We're an example of the unnamed woman in, in this story. We are full of sin and we just need Jesus. Truth of the matter is we're also the Pharisee. Now, we may not want to admit it, but we have a tendency in verse 39, just as he spoke to himself, we have a tendency to be that judgmental in our head too, don't we? We have a tendency to do that. Boy, God help us to see the beauty of forgiveness. God help us to see the beauty of we can all be forgiven. See, this man, Simon, this Pharisee, he looked good. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader of the day. He obviously spoke well about God. He was very well, obviously, respected in the community. Jesus coming over to sit with him and eat and people being around. This guy had it all looking good on the outside. Inside, this guy wasn't right with the Lord. Now, once again, we don't know his heart. Did he invite Jesus over to really get to know Jesus better? I don't, I don't know. I know that when he did invite Jesus over, in his mind, verse 39, he started questioning who Jesus was. He started questioning the motives of Christ. Why would he allow this to happen? See, the whole point that Jesus is trying to do here, look at this. Verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, teacher, say it. And now he goes through the story of the one guy owed 500, the other guy owed 50. And look at the end of verse 42. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Just always note this in the Bible. Anytime Jesus asks a question, he's never asking a question to find out information. He's usually setting the person up. So the Pharisee invited Jesus over. Why? We don't know for sure. Jesus knew the real motives. This Pharisee's heart needed to be addressed. What happened is this Pharisee needed to have a lesson in forgiveness. 500 pieces of silver, 50 pieces of silver, who's forgiven more? I just read an article here recently. There was a guy over in France, and maybe you heard this, that got busted for some inside illegal trading. And so he has a penalty to pay of $6.3 billion. $6.3 billion. He's in jail right now. I think they said the jail sentence is 10 years. So they said when he gets out of jail, what they're going to do is garnish his wages. Now there's no way, no way. He's going to pay $6.3 billion. So what happens is they said they're going to garnish his wages, basically take any surplus he has, leave him enough to just live. Now, see, the Bible makes it clear that you owe a debt and I owe a debt. And that's, a, that's a debt we can't pay. Jesus forgives that debt. Now, what do you do when Jesus forgives that debt? See, look at this woman. She didn't care. She didn't care what anybody thought about her. She didn't care what people thought about her past. She didn't care what people thought about what she was doing presently. She was so overwhelmed with the forgiveness of Jesus and who Jesus was, she was willing to go in and take her most valuable possession, this fragrant oil that she had, and she was going to use this on the feet of Christ. She was going to weep openly in front of Christ. She was going to not care at all 
what people thought about her because she just wanted to be near Jesus. God help us to be like that because we're the Pharisee. We're too calm, cool, and collect to be open about Jesus. This woman didn't care. She was willing to come in and just be at the feet of Jesus. Let people say what they want to say. Let people think what they want to think. Let people do what they're going to do. She was just so overwhelmed with what Jesus has done for her that she needed to be at his feet. And that's what she did. Simon the Pharisee, well, he knew God, obviously. He didn't allow his relationship with God to be personal. He didn't allow his relationship with God to dictate who he was. See, when Jesus showed up, look at this, verse 44. Jesus turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. She gave the most valuable possession she had. Now we don't have an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. What's the most valuable possession we have? It's our life. Are you willing to go down to the feet of Jesus and open up your life to him? See, the Pharisee wasn't willing to do that. He was willing to sit near Jesus. He was willing to have a meal with Jesus. He was willing to have a relationship in that sense with Jesus. This woman said, no, I want the detailed intimate, deep relationship with Christ, and I don't care. See, that is what we need. Too often, we go to the route of the Pharisee. Oh, I, I believe in God. I've heard people say numerous times, and I probably even said it myself, I let my actions be my witness. But God also gave you a tongue. We need to use that in what we say and what we do for the Lord. See, a lot of us are that Pharisee. We don't hide the fact we're religious. We don't hide the fact we believe in God. But are we willing to humble ourselves, to be at the feet of Jesus, to weep over his feet, to give up everything we owe for him? This woman was. And when this woman was willing to do that, she's the one that in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. She's the one in verse 50, go in peace. Because her heart was so open to who Christ was. Boy, does our heart want that same thing? Does our heart break and hurt to realize that there's a lot of Pharisees out there? They don't really know Jesus. They look good. It's kind of interesting. We've been talking a lot with the boys here lately about witnessing. And one of the things that we've been saying to them when it comes to witnessing is part of the way you can witness is ask people for prayer requests. So they've been going up and asking people for prayer requests. And then we write them down and we pray for them every day. And we got this group of six names that we've been praying for that people have asked us to pray for and they don't know God. So the boys have been praying for them. Now, this kind of blows the boys' mind that there's people in this world that don't know God. That's how they say it. Do they know God? I say, no, they don't know God. And they just don't know him. It just absolutely blows their mind. They don't know how anybody could not know God. We were at Walmart a while ago, and we were waiting in the car. Dawn was in there, and there was this woman walking into Walmart, and she had some piece of paper in her hand. And she just threw it right there. She just littered. One of the boys saw that and was just aghast, just absolutely aghast. Dad, what? I said, she just threw paper on the ground. I said, okay. He goes, Dad, she doesn't know God. See, he, equate, <laughs> he equates littering without knowing God. That was Judah. So then Elias says... Dad, you need to go talk to her now. <laughs> and it's like, I don't think the Spirit's leading me to go talk to the woman that just littered about not knowing God and I can't leave you. They were just aghast. They, she doesn't know God. She littered. And so when, when there's people here that when we find out they don't know God, the boys just don't know how to handle that. You know why? In their little simplistic minds, why doesn't everybody know God? I mean, why not? We were, turn with me to Revelation 20, please. The boys were asking about hell and the end of the world. So we, for devotions last night, went to Revelation 20. And they're just blown away that there's people that would not accept the Lord. See, now this is what happens. They come up to me and they say, Dad, why don't they know God? So me going to pastor mode, well, one of the gifts that God gave us was free will. And see, in free will, we can choose to follow or not follow, blah, blah, blah. I go down the whole theological thing. And in their little world, 
It's, it's, that's too complex. It's simple. If you know that God exists and you know that he loves you and you know that there's a hell, why would you not choose God in salvation? And I stopped and I thought about that and I thought, you know what? I need to get back to that simplistic mindset. Guys, there's a hell. Why would we not want to know Jesus? There's a hell. Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. If anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's a hell. And if you choose not to accept Christ, you're choosing hell. Now, at this point, there's always someone that starts to say something in their head to the fact of, well, this is why I have a problem with Christianity. How can a God of love send somebody to hell? And this is where I always say two points on that. First off, if you study out the Bible, hell was never intended for us. Never. Hell was intended as a punishment for Satan and the fallen angels. Number two, God does not send somebody to hell. I choose to reject Jesus, which therefore leaves only one other choice, hell. God doesn't want anybody to go there. The Bible makes that clear. The boys don't get that. Why would someone reject? And like I said, I used to have a deep answer, and now I'm, I'm on the same level as the four-year-old, the six-year-old, and the seven-year-old. I don't know why someone would reject. I don't want to go to hell. I've shared with you many times that uh, when I got saved, it was the altar call when we were in the little white uh, house, which is now the library by the bank, and I remember Jim taught on hell, and he gave an altar call, and I heard about hell, and I said, I don't want to go to hell. So how do I get out of hell? Jesus then I believe. Now, that's biblical. Jude said, Sam, some are saved with fear, pulling them out of the fires of hell. Now, once I got saved, I started to fully grasp and realize salvation and grace and mercy and the forgiveness of God. But what really impacted me is there's a heaven and there's a hell, and which one are you going to? Why was this woman so willing to humble herself Give up her most valuable possession, weep at the feet of Jesus, wash the feet of Jesus in front of everybody, and not care what anybody thought. You know why she was willing to do that? Because she realized what God saved her out of. When she realized what God saved her out of, nothing else mattered. When you realize that God saved you out of hell, nothing else mattered matters. It doesn't matter if your co-workers think you're crazy because you talk about the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're the only one putting your hands up in worship. It doesn't matter if you're the only one not doing that or doing this. It doesn't matter. God saved you out of hell, and so now you are the unnamed woman with the unnamed sin where you say, I am so overwhelmed by what Jesus did, I just want to be at his feet. problem is, too many of us are the Pharisees on the side, analyzing, thinking, wondering, we're okay with Jesus. I'll invite him over for supper. I'll talk to him as an equal. No, let's humble ourselves and be at the feet of Jesus because we realize what he saved us out of. What is hell? We don't have time today to get into a lesson of hell, but I just want to share these things with you. According to Matthew 13, hell is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you ever been in so much physical, immense pain that you're like grinding your teeth just in pain? Okay, imagine that for all of eternity, but yet worse than what you can ever imagine. Hell is torment. It says in the book of Jude that it's utter darkness, which could also mean spiritual and physical. Hell is eternal torment in Revelation 40 and Revelation 20. I think one of the scariest verses in the Bible for me is in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns in the second coming, he takes the false prophet, the Antichrist, and he casts them into hell. He also puts Satan in there for a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, Satan rebels, he's let loose, and he rebels, and God puts him back in in Revelation 20. 
But there's this little passage that when Satan goes back into hell after a thousand years, it says where the false prophet and the Antichrist are. That's present tense. It's not were. It's not the false prophet and the Antichrist went to hell, got burned up, and ceased to exist. They went to hell, and a thousand years later, they're still there being tormented. They're still there in hell. Thessalonians says hell is eternal separation from God. That's what made Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, we don't fully understand eternal separation from God. If you're born again and saved, Holy Spirit lives inside of you. God's always with you. And if you weren't saved, you're always around people that were saved. You could go to church anytime you wanted. God was always available to you because he wants you at the door of salvation. You were around people that were strong in the Lord, so you sensed that presence of God God's always around you some way, either in you or if you're not saved here today, through other people that are saved. See, in hell, that's gone. And I think we take for granted that constant God being there for us and with us. See, in hell, there's that separation from them. Let's finish this up. Can you turn to Luke 16? This woman, why was she willing to humble herself? Why was she willing to give up her most valuable possession? Why was she willing to care about nothing else but Jesus? Because she knew what she was saved from. The Pharisee, he didn't realize what type of sinner he was. See, some of us still here today, we don't think we're that bad. Oh, yeah, I mean, I know God saved me from hell. I mean, I get it, but come on. See, we're the Pharisee. We think we're okay. We need to humble ourselves to the unnamed woman with the unnamed sin. Just say, I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner, and I want to be at the feet of Jesus. Luke 16, verse 19. There's a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. Talk about a discrepancy in life. You couldn't get a further apart from people. The rich man, verse 19, and Lazarus the beggar, verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. As we read these next few verses in the New King James here, think about how many times the word torment is used. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in the bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things, but now he's comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us there is this great gulf fixed that you may, that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. This is fascinating, this glimpse that we have into this. This man is in hell, and what's the only thing he's thinking of? Brothers that don't know God. Now, just think about that for a second. I don't, I'm not saying this to convict you. I'm not saying this to step on your toes. I'm saying this to, for us to get an eternal perspective here. The only thing that matters is whether someone spends eternity in heaven or hell. That has all that matters. And, and if, you, if you disagree with me on that, I would love to talk to you about that. Because we get ourselves too worked up in life on things that do not carry an eternal perspective. This man, when faced with eternity in hell, the only thing he's thinking of is what? I have people that don't know God. You have unsaved loved ones. You have unsaved friends. You have relatives, co-workers. I don't know. Are we so impacted by what God has saved us out of, like the woman at the feet of Jesus, that it spurs us on to say, I know what happens. God has saved me from the pit, so I want to pass that saving onto someone else. Or are we once again going to be the Pharisees? Invite Jesus over, hang out with him, talk to him, but never really commit. When you commit yourself to Christ like the woman, it's humbling. 
but you don't care what anybody else thinks. You're willing to give everything you have just to be at the feet of Jesus to say, you saved me, you forgave me, and this is what I want. So God, help us to have that same heart and mindset. Help us to be the unnamed woman who just has peace and forgiveness through Christ, and the only thing we want to do is be at the feet of Jesus and point people towards him. As this week goes on, there's going to be a lot of things in your home life at work, in the world, at school, it's going to want to distract you off the eternity of heaven and hell. Keep that mindset. In the whole scheme of eternity, does this matter? We already talked about the beginning, John 16, 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. There's going to be trouble. But he says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's keep that mindset of I just want to be at the feet of Christ and be realized I'm forgiven and I have peace. But God help us with that. Marvin Kelly, if you want to come forward here for the final song, let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to keep that mindset. Lord, help us just to be at your feet in all that we say and all that we do, because that's all that matters, Lord. That is truly all that matters. Lord, help us to have that eternal perspective. Help that to spur us on in how we live and how we act to put you first. We really believe time is short, Lord. Help us to use that time for you. And we say thank you. Give us opportunities to shine for you. Give us opportunities to love. In your name we pray. Amen.